Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Standing Strong in Trying Times, a study of the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel gives stories of faithful believers standing strong in trying times of exile and visions of the ultimate victory of God's kingdom over the kingdoms of this world. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's word in your life today. and uh, jump in to God's Word. Today we're going to be continuing our series on Daniel, looking at Daniel chapter 9. Today we're going to do the first 19 verses, and next Sunday we're going to look at verses 20 through 27 of Daniel chapter 9. And all these uh, are going to be up here on the screen. You can also follow along in your booklet. And I do want to say uh, as well, before we get ready to start, for folks who've been around here for a long time, we are blessed this morning to have Kurt and Sally uh, Jackson and their daughter Sarah here with us. Um, And so we supported them for many, many years. They did work down in Guatemala. Uh, A number of folks were down there. In fact, Carol Collison was down there, my wife Lyndon. Uh, some of our kids were here, so we are really glad to have Kurt and Sally up there getting ready, I believe, to head back to Guatemala, correct? They're heading back down there this week. So we're glad to have you all worshiping with us. Uh, Daniel chapter 9, we're going to read the first uh, 19 verses. Follow along in your scripture. Hear now the word of your creator and your redeemer and your covenant Lord. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous. But this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and the people of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far, in the countries where you've scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. O Lord, we and our kings, our princes and our fathers are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving Even though we have rebelled against him, we have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, 
all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. O Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away from your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and the iniquities of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, O Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, O God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make request of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, hear and act. For your sake, O oh my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. May God bless the reading of his word. So if you've been following along in Daniel or you're familiar with it, this chapter comes as a bit of a shock, or this prayer, as a real change of pace. Daniel chapter 1 to 6 is full of all these famous hair-raising stories. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace. Uh, you know, the, the, the times under Nebuchadnezzar where he gets turned basically and given the mind of an animal. Daniel thrown into the lion's den. There's all of this amazing action that is going on. And then Daniel 7 and 8, and we're going to see 10 and 11 and 12, are full of these wild, unusual visions that are happening that are regarding the, the future. They are apocalyptic visions. And right in the middle of it, after we've done these two chapters of apocalyptic visions and all of these historical narrative, suddenly there's 19 verses of a prayer. It seems almost out of place, except for it's really not, because the prayer is intimately connected with everything that has come before. It arises out of Daniel's experience of the exile, and it's also intimately connected with what, knows, what Daniel knows from the apocalyptic visions lies in the future for his people. He's already heard in chapter 7 and chapter 8 that even after the people of Israel return to the promised land, there are difficult days ahead. The exile will be over in one sense, but in another sense, there are even more difficult times that uh, are awaiting them. So we're going to take time and dive in and look at this. I'm calling this Exile Prayers, and this chapter is a great way for us to learn about prayer. In fact, just this week uh, in the pastor's prayer gathering that I lead on Wednesdays, this was what we used to guide our prayer time. We, we used Daniel 1, 9-19 to guide our time in prayer, and it can teach you and I a lot about prayer. So let's dive in. First, I want us to notice the time and the basis of Daniel's prayer. Daniel prays many, many times during the exile. This particular prayer is recorded and given to us for a very specific reason. Notice 
the prayer is coming at a very critical moment for Israel. In uh, verse 1 we read, In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. So this is happening in 539 B.C. Either Darius is either a, a, a royal name that's given to one of the generals who helped conquer Babylon as under Cyrus, or I actually believe it is probably a throne name for Cyrus himself. A number of Persian kings took this particular name. Uh, but either way, we know it's 539 B.C. And what this means is the second of the four major kingdoms. Remember, we've seen in chapter 2, in chapter 7, and in chapter 8, there are four kingdoms that are going to arise. Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and ancient Rome. These four empires were going to arise. And so what's happened at the time of this prayer is Babylon, the first kingdom, has fallen and the second kingdom of Persia has now come onto the scene. So Daniel knows things are shifting. And furthermore, the head of the Persian Empire at this time is Cyrus. And Daniel knows from the Scripture in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28, Isaiah 45, uh, 1, and Isaiah 45, 13, three times we're told that Cyrus is going to allow the Jews to leave Babylon and return back to the promised land and to rebuild the temple. So not only because of the dreams and the visions and he sees that the kingdoms are shifting, but because of God's prophetic word, Isaiah, I mean, Daniel knows that we are at a critical moment. So Daniel is thinking about this. He is seeking God. And in fact, his entire prayer is based on the word of God. Notice in verse 2, uh, Daniel says, so in the first year of his reign, at this critical moment, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So notice here, Daniel has turned to the word of God to understand what's going on at his times. It's a tumultuous time. Babylon has fallen. Persia is rising. He's heard about these kingdoms. And so he turns to the Word of God to understand what's going on. And as we're going to see, the entire prayer arises from Scripture. It's filled with scriptural phrases, allusions, and theology. And very specifically, Daniel knows from the Word of God that the exile is going to last 70 years. Now, I'm not going to talk about this this morning, but notice it's, it's very interesting. Jeremiah, the, the ink is barely dry on Jeremiah's writings, and yet Daniel refers to them as Scripture. So some people act like you have to wait centuries and centuries and centuries. You don't. In the New Testament, Peter already refers to Paul's writings as Scripture, and here Daniel's referring to Jeremiah's writings as Scripture. They knew that the Spirit had spoken. And specifically, he goes back to Jeremiah 25 and 29, and where we're told that the exile will last 70 years. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 11 and 12, Jeremiah had prophesied this, this whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate 
forever. So notice, they're told you're going to serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Well, Jeremiah, I mean, Daniel knows, well, gee, I got, I was there in 606 and 605 when Nebuchadnezzar rolled in. I was taken exile. So it's at this point been 66 years. We have the second kingdom. Cyrus is the leader of the kingdom. I know in the next three years, we're going to be able to go back and start rebuilding the temple because the prophecy in Jeremiah 25 was actually given in the year that Daniel was taken away into exile, again, around 605 B.C. And so it means it's time for the exiles to go home. And this point is repeated uh, Jeremiah wrote to the exiles in Jeremiah chapter 29 and told them, he reminded them, it's going to last 70 years. We see the same point in Ezra chapter 1 verse 1 and in 2 Chronicles 36, 20 to 23, which is actually in the, the Hebrew order of the Old Testament. 2 Chronicles is the last book. That's the closing verses of the entire Old Testament are about the 70 years ending and Israel being allowed to go home. And so what all of this means is Daniel is looking in the Word of God and he knows that the time for the end of the exile has come, but notice he doesn't say, well, that's great. He turns to God in prayer. He doesn't just say, well, God promised, therefore it's done. He says, no, God has promised I'm living at the time where it's been promised for, therefore I need to begin seeking God in prayer. And notice this prayer uh, is not just vaguely biblical, the entire prayer is based on God's covenant with Israel. And we see this in two specific ways. Number one, Daniel knows that the exile was uh, all came about as a result of the covenantal curse. Israel, Judah, didn't just lose a battle. God was not defeated by the gods of the Babylonians. God had warned Israel, if you violate my covenant, you will go into exile. He did this many, many places. It's all over the book of Deuteronomy. But one specific place that's very important in this chapter um, is in Leviticus 25 and 26, God had laid out the issue of the Sabbath years, told Israel, you must keep the Sabbath as a sign of the covenant between you and me, and if you do not, there is a danger. And we see in Leviticus 26, 33, and 34 the following words. I will scatter you among the nations and will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste and your cities will lie in ruins. Then the land will enjoy its Sabbath years all the time that it lies desolate and you are in the country of your enemies. Then the land will rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. God had told him, Israel, you're my people. And here's a sign of the covenant between you and me. I'm graciously doing all these things, but I require you every seven years to set aside a Sabbath year. And we see in the Old Testament, Israel basically never did that. And God had warned them, if you do not, the land will get its Sabbath. It'll get it because I'm going to empty you out of the land. I'm going to send you away to another country. And during that period of time, uh, the land will enjoy its Sabbath. 
I spoke about this actually a lot in the very first teaching in this series. If you look in the discussion guide, uh, there's, there's links for further study. and You can go back and look again because it's very, very clear. In Chronicles, we're told specifically, this is why the exile happened. They did not observe the Sabbath. That was one of the many commands they broke. And God sent them away. And they, it had missed 70 Sabbath years. So it was getting its 70 Sabbath years years of times. And so that's the first reason it's all covenantal. The exile didn't just happen. It was part of God's covenant with Israel. Secondly, and this is not as easy to see for us in in English, but God's covenant name is used throughout this prayer. By the covenant name of God, I mean what some people refer to as the tetragrammaton, the four letters. We call it Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. That name um, is used here in the prayer. Notice in Daniel chapter 9, verses 2 and 4, for example. I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures according to the word of the Lord, that's Yahweh, given to Jeremiah the prophet the desolation of Jerusalem the last 70 years, in verse 4. And so I prayed to the Lord, that is again, Yahweh my God, and confessed. Now, this is important for two reasons. Number one, this is God's covenant name. It's the name he revealed uh, himself to Israel by as he was bringing Israel out of Egypt. That's when he gave this name and said, look, nobody had known me by this name before, but this is my covenant name, Israel, that I am giving to you. And so the great exodus that happened related to God's covenant name. Now they need another exodus, and he is using it. But even more importantly than that, the covenant name appears seven times in this chapter. Don't miss the symbolism. Seven times. Guess how many other times the name Yahweh appears in the entire book of Daniel? Zero. None. Not once. It's conspicuous by its absence everywhere else, but it occurs seven times in Daniel 9, 1 to 20. Because the entire prayer is covenantal. It is a prayer based on God's covenant with his people Israel. And so Daniel is constantly referring to God, not as the God of heaven and earth and all the other terms that we've seen throughout the book of Daniel, but rather Yahweh. I'm calling you by your covenant name because my whole prayer, my whole hope that we will be restored is based on your covenant. We're here in this mess because we violated your covenant, but your mercies are new every morning. So I'm praying based on the covenant Oh God, would you restore us? One last thing to note about the prayer before we dive into it is I want you to see. So Daniel sees all this in the scripture. He knows it's happened. He knows it's based on God's covenant. He's appealing to God's covenant. But I want you to see this is an intense prayer. Daniel's not just saying, oh, well, you said it, God, do it. There's nothing like that. That's the way we tend to respond today, but that is not how Daniel responds. Notice in verse 3, because I've seen all this, because I know what's going on, because I know God has promised that this is the end time, I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, and in sackcloth and ashes. See, 
we would have a tendency today to think that since God's word regarding the exile is already there and there's also the covenant, there's not even a reason for prayer. In fact, there are people today that say, hey, if you keep asking for something, that's a sign you're lacking faith. The only problem with that is the Bible. Okay? That's the exact opposite of what the Scripture says. Daniel doesn't say, well, God said it, and therefore I'm just going to you know, sit back and I have faith. I don't need to pray. No, Daniel says, no, I not only pray, I pray with pleading with God. I pray in sackcloth. I pray in ashes. I am praying in confession. I am pouring out my heart to God. God's sovereignty and his covenant are never a basis for human presumption, inactivity, or apathy. Never, but are always an invitation to intense prayer and faith-filled activity. Do I believe in the sovereignty of God? Absolutely. Okay, if you're around here, if you've been listening to me preach for more than like five minutes, sovereignty of God is a, a central feature. We trust in the sovereignty of God. That never, ever ever leads to inactivity. Do I believe God has promised to call the nations to himself? Yes. Does that mean that, well, just you do it, God? See, early on there was a church when, when some of the missions was really beginning to happen. There was my young man, if God wants to save those heathen over there, he'll do it himself. He doesn't need you. What? Where, where is that in the scripture? No. We know God has promised to draw on the nations, therefore we go. We know that God promises, he gives gracious promises to us regarding our children. That never gave me an excuse to sit back and say, well, therefore, I don't need to disciple them. No, that gives me faith to actively engage and disciple them because I know of God's gracious promises. And that's exactly what's going on here. And so notice, because of that, Daniel doesn't offer some half-hearted prayer, but he's intensely praying fasting, sackcloth, ashes. He's indicating his desire to God. I know you've promised this, but I am pleading with everything in me. Hear my prayer, O God. Listen, see what's going on, and rise up and act. Friend, that is a great example for you and I today. When we are exiles, and we are exiles, because, see, they were sent away in, in the Mosaic Covenant. Exile was a penalty. In the new covenant, exile's a feature. It's what we are. You're exiles. Okay? That, that's the way it is. So when we were hearing from our friend a few minutes ago about China, when that individual goes to China, they live there as an exile. And they are no more exiled there than you and I are here. We're exiles. Realize that. And that calls us to intense prayer. We'll come back to that in a couple of minutes. So let's dive into the prayer. There are three key aspects in the prayer. I'm not going to work phrase by phrase through it. There are kind of three key themes that we see arise out of the prayer. Number one, it's a prayer of praise for God's awesomeness and character. Notice how Daniel begins the prayer in verse 4. It says, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God. Right out of the gate, before he says anything else, Daniel begins praying to God and adoring God and confessing God's 
awesomeness. And prayer should always recognize the greatness of God. Because if God's not great, why bother praying? If he can't intervene and act, why bother praying? If Cyrus or Cyrus's gods are actually greater than Yahweh, what would be the point? So Daniel begins by confessing before the Lord the greatness and awesomeness of God. And as exiles, as we profess the awesomeness of God in prayer, it stirs up our faith in the midst of trying circumstances. When you and I are struggling, when it seems like the exile is crashing in upon us, it seems like God is far distant, that is not an invitation to crawl over into the corner and cry. It's an invitation to cry out to God. In fact, friends, if you look in the Scripture, God very, very often uses circumstances to encourage us to turn to Him. In fact, there's a bad idea out there that God will never give you more than you can handle. Actually, He will. He promises to give you more than you can handle for the purpose that you will cry out to Him and then He will come in and act and deliver in the circumstances. If I can do it myself, I don't need God. But seeing as even the air I'm breathing is his, it would be kind of hard to say I can do anything myself. Okay, so right off the bat, Daniel begins by professing the awesomeness of God. But notice he also proclaims the character of God in the prayer. He continues and says, you are the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. He's saying, God, you are faithful. Our problems with us being here in the exile are not because you are unfaithful. We're going to see in a moment, Daniel knows exactly where they arise from. It's the people of Israel's unfaithfulness. For those who've been around before, I'm going to point out the word there, covenant of love. This is a word I've mentioned before. It's a very important, it's one of the Hebrew words I love. It's chesed, which means a covenant faithfulness loyalty. It's the love that pursues us. It's in Psalm chapter 23 that God's love that pursues us, his mercies pursue us. It's in the, the Psalm where it says, you know, we praise the Lord because his mercies are new every morning or his love never fails, depending on the translation you're using. That's the word where every verse is telling you his chesed is eternal. It never fails. See, that is the character of God that Daniel is appealing to. Because if God is not faithful, there's no hope. Because Israel was unfaithful. That's why they were in the mess. The only basis for the prayer has to be found outside of Israel, and it has to be found in the covenant nature of God. And so actually, Daniel appeals to this throughout the prayer. For example, notice in verse 7, I'm putting these up on the screen, he prays and he says, O Lord, you are righteous. We're not, but you are. Verse 9, the Lord, Yahweh, is merciful and forgiving. And by the way, when I've got Lord in caps there, that is Yahweh. Again, he's appealing to the covenant. Verse 14, the Lord is righteous in everything he does. Verse 18, God has great mercy. From the first phrase almost to the very end, the entire appeal is based on not only that God is awesome, but that God is a God of character. 
And so friends, as exiles, you and I approach God in prayer not based on His righteousness, but based on His character. And there's a good time for you to say amen. Because if you are honest, I have no basis on my own righteousness. Okay? We, we, we have good weeks, which are not nearly as good as we think they are. And then we have regular weeks. Right? Where we realize I fall short. I, I, I do not have a basis other than the character of God. But thanks be to God. Our God is a God of chesed. Our God is a God of faithful covenant love and mercy. Our God forgives all our sins. He heals us. He works in our life because of who he is. Now secondly, that leads Daniel to a prayer that is a deep confession of sin. Notice how he jumps on it right out of the gate after he's confessed God's awesomeness and character in verses 5 and 6. He says, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and to all the people of the land. So notice here, Daniel is responding uh, to the exile and all that he and Israel have suffered, even in the light of visions of Daniel 7 and 8, where he knows it's going to continue in persecution. Notice his focus is not, oh God, look how bad Babylon is. Oh God, these Persians worship all these false gods. Okay? The call to you and I as exiles is not to confess the sins of our enemies. Let me say that again. The call to you and I as exiles is not to confess the sins of our enemies. We spend a lot of time doing that. And I suspect God says, aren't they cute? What, what are they talking about? It's not my job in prayer to confess someone else's sin. It's my job in prayer to own up to my own sin. And so notice Daniel is confessing and repenting for the sin of Israel. Did Babylon have sin? Yes. They were a pagan, idolatrous, terrible nation, and God warned them that, that even though he had called them to go there, they had, they had extended their judgment and gone beyond bounds, and God had warned them that they were going to come under judgment. But that's not Daniel's concern. Daniel's concern is the sin of Israel. And notice how complete he is in his confession. First off, I've got up there in the yellow, sin, done wrong, wicked, rebelled, turned away, not listened. It's six different Hebrew terms he uses to say sin. And it's not, it's not about each one of them having a different nuance. It's just Daniel saying, whatever way you want to term it, we're guilty of it. We have sinned. We have rebelled. We have done wrong. We have transgressed. We have broken your covenant. However you look at sin, O oh Lord, we are guilty. Israel's broken God's covenant law. And then notice what he says there, the part um, uh, in there, he says that we did not listen to your servants, the prophets. That's still actually there in the white. We didn't listen. Even when you had warned us in the Mosaic Covenant, you told us what was going to happen, you then extended grace and mercy by sending the prophets who reminded us, and we ignored them just like we had ignored Moses. I mean, that's the depth of our sin. 
Uh, and notice he brings up the part that I've got there in orange. It's every stratum of Jewish society. It was our kings, our princes, our fathers, all the people of the land. From the king sitting on the throne to the poorest peasant in the land, we all violated. We were all guilty. This wasn't them. See, this is again what we want to do today. We like to break everything down and say, my problems are due to that group. No, your problem and my problem is ourselves. That's where our problems arise from. And that's exactly what Daniel says. And notice here, very interestingly, I've highlighted, you see how many times Daniel says, we, 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 we. Did Daniel refuse to practice Sabbath? How many sins are actually recorded in the Bible that Daniel committed? Does anybody know? We don't know of a single one. Now, did Daniel sin? Yes. But notice... Daniel doesn't even say, oh Lord, we are here because of those unfaithful Jews over there. And if they had just been faithful like me, we wouldn't be in this mess. He's not confessing even the sins of the other Jews. It is we, 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 we. And I want you to notice many of these sins that he's talking about were done before he was even born. They were previous generations had done the sin. There is nothing in this prayer that tries to minimize sin or Daniel's involvement in it. Because friends, when you and I do that, that is a warning bell. We should, ne we should never be in trying to spin how it's not really my fault. Never should we do that. We should always be willing to own up. That's exactly what Daniel does. And so notice, Daniel admits that Israel's problems are due to her sin and not other causes. In verses 7 and 8, uh, he prays, and he says, you know, Lord, you're righteous, but we're covered in shame. And here's why. Because you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. And in verse 8, we are covered with shame because we have sinned against you. See, the exile was not because Babylon had a stronger army. That's not why the exile happened. The exile happened because the people of God were unfaithful. When God's people are ashamed before the enemies of the gospel, it is a call to confess our sin and to cry out for God's mercy. Not to confess their sin, not to complain against them. It's going to get real quiet in here. You see, this is what Daniel teaches us. See, I want to go to God and complain about what they're doing. That's not my place. My place is to go before God and own up to what I have done. And it's not to complain about the church down the road, the Christian family next door that's involved doing things I don't think they ought to be doing. It's for me to own up, for me to to confess, and to cry out for God's mercy. And see, and that's because Daniel recognizes there is a great danger that even though God has warned, even though he sent the prophets to warn again, there's a danger of not repenting when God's discipline comes upon his people. Notice in verse 13, just as it is written in the law of the Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not sought 
the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. God had warned and disciplined them, but they had not listened. They were not responding. If you go back and look in verses 6 and 10, we'll see this. And because of their uh, continual waywardness, they were sent into exile, which was designed to wake them so that they would seek God. But Daniel's sitting here and he's saying, I fear even the exile has not excised this out of our hearts. And of course, if you continue to look at Israel's history, which is going to culminate, we're going to see next week in Daniel 9, 20 to 27, Daniel's going to prophesy what he refers to as the 77s, and we're going to see it's about Jesus coming, and when the Messiah comes to deliver Israel, somebody help me out, what's the response? Yeah, it's not a good response. That's not a sign of a heart that's soft before God. That's a heart. You remember Jesus even told the parable? Oh, we sent all the prophets and everything. We killed them. We killed them. And so I'm going to send my son. Surely they will respond to my son. Oh, they responded. See, there's a danger that even when the judgment of God comes, I can be so focused on what other people are doing that I don't respond to God's hand of discipline. I miss it. And I continue in my sin. And so Daniel here is recognizing that the greatest enemy to God's people is not those who are set against God and his gospel, but rather our own sin. My problem ultimately is not what somebody out there is doing. It's just not. I would would much rather it be so. My problem is my own wayward heart. Now, I will say real briefly, you may wonder, well, isn't there a place for lament? Can't I cry out to God that I'm suffering under all this? Yes, there is. Isn't there a place, God, where I can ask God to rise up and to strike down the enemies of the gospel? Yes, there is. We see that in the Psalms, and I'm going to talk about that in after hours. So if you dive in on Tuesday, I'll talk about it a little bit. But I want you to notice that's not the dominant note. That's not what Daniel turns to. The dominant note needs to be confession of our own sin. And let me say, particularly that needs to be the dominant note because that is not what Americans want to think. We want to look for the problem somewhere else, and therefore all the more we need to hear, no, go to confessing your own sin. And then finally, Daniel dives in, and he prays for God to bring glory to his name and to restore his people. Notice in verses 17 to 19, when he, this is where he finally, after confession and confession and confession, he finally comes and says, okay, God, this is what I'm asking for. So now, God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, notice in verse 17. Uh, in verse 18, for the city that bears your name. In verse 19, for your sake, oh my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Why is Daniel asking God to end the exile? See, I, here's how, why I would be asking it, because I'm tired of living in Babylon. Lord, look at me. Lord, help me. Lord, do something for me. But what's Daniel's concern? The glory of God, the name of God, God being lifted up. And so notice three times there his appeal is to the glory and honor of God. That's what's paramount in Daniel's heart and mind. Is that what drives us? 
Is, is it the glory of God? Would we be willing to pray as the American church? Oh, Lord, even if America is to go down, even if America is going, as long as your gospel prospers and the kingdom grows around the world, your kingdom come, your will be done. Lord, that's what matters. Don't quickly answer that. Is that really where, where I'm at? Is it really the honor of God's name? With our kids, I've been, my prayer for my children and now my prayer for my grandchildren regularly is, Lord, what matters is that they know you, that they embrace your covenant, that they walk with you. Lord, should you send them far away? God, whatever else goes on, I can embrace that as long as they are part of seeing your kingdom come, your will be done. Is that our heart? Is that the way we're crying out to God? Because it's what Daniel shows us. And notice, he also asked God to look with favor on his desolate sanctuary. And this is pretty interesting. This goes back to the covenant where we're told there, if you can go back one screen real quick, um, he, he says, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary there in verse 17. Well, that phrase, look with favor, is actually the phrase, make your face shine upon your sanctuary. Anybody remember those words? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. This was the covenant blessing. Daniel saying, oh Lord, we've experienced the covenant curse. Lord, restore your favor. Lord, let your face shine upon us. Let your blessings come upon us. And notice at the end of number six, it ends by saying, give us shalom. Remember, they were told, you better pray and you better labor for the shalom of the place to which I've sent you into exile. Daniel's saying, we've been here. We've endured the exile. We've done this. Lord, we're asking that you would let your face shine upon us because we need your shalom. We need it to come upon us. And friends, this is the ultimate blessing. It is better to experience difficulties in this world and to have God's face shine upon us rather than to experience temporal blessings and have God's face turned away from us. And then the last thing, and we'll go to applying the word and come to the table. Notice again the intensity of the prayer. I mentioned he was doing it in sackcloth and ashes, but I love the end of this. This isn't Daniel falling asleep. This is not a, a sleepy little yawning prayer. He ends by saying, Oh Lord, listen. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, hear and act. For your sake, oh my God, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. Notice, we saw the note of intensity before he even began the prayer, and here at the end of his prayer, Daniel is crying out with great intensity to God. And brothers and sisters, exile prayers should never be boring. If you and I understand the place we are as exiles, it'll drive you to your knees in prayer. And that is true, I remind you, Whoever wins whatever elections, whatever the current laws are, you, you're in exile, and so am I. And the place of exiles is always precarious. Always precarious. And so, as a result, we, when we consider the constant temptations to compromise, 
our ever-present sin and the constant dangers of the beastly kingdoms of this world? Friends, our prayers ought to sound like that, not the angel Gabriel having to shake us and wake us up. It's intense prayer. And it worries me. One of my deepest worries for the church in America is we are not given to prayer. We are given to everything else, friends. It worries me how hard it is even to gather other shepherds together to pray sometimes because we're so busy with other things. Is my confidence in the character and nature of God and in his covenant provisions and his answering of our prayers or is my confidence in my other labors? Which is it? So that's what Daniel does. Now, how do we apply this? It's going to be really simple, just one thing, and we come to the Lord's table. The question is, how's my prayer life? How is my prayer life? See, this, this chapter can strike us as strange at first, but when Daniel faces the struggles of exile and the concerns regarding the future, he turned to prayer. We already saw that all the way back in chapter 1 and 2. And here, in the midst of these visions and seeing where they are, Daniel turns to prayer. And so there's a challenge to you and to me, how is my prayer life? Let me unpack, give you a couple of questions so you can answer that question. Do I regularly pray? Or do I only pray when everything, when all the wheels are coming off? Oh God, I need help. Yes, you do. 24-7. So do I. So, not asking you to shout out the answer, but which is true? Because, friends, the regularity of my prayers reveals how deeply the exile, my status as an exile, has settled in on my heart. My recognition of my need for God. When I do pray, do my prayers reflect biblical concerns like confessing my sin, praying for the glory of God, and praying for the prosperity of God's people? Are those things that characterize my sin, or does it sound more like a shopping list of what I need, a to-do list, my advice session with God? What would characterize my prayers. Turn it a little bit more. Are my prayers sleepy or are they filled with an intensity befitting my status as an exile? See, let's be honest. If you were getting lowered into the lion's den, who would be praying? We would all be praying. And would my prayer be flowery and boring or would my prayer sound like Oh, God, <laughs> you're in the lion's den. So am I. We, we may have forgotten that that lion's right there, and it may be asleep right now, but friends, the lion can awake at any moment, and you're not going to get out of it if it does, nor am I. Is my prayer something that is befitting recognizing that's my state, that's my status, that's my need for God? Is it when we pray, each week we pray for the missionaries, is that just something 
we go through? Are we crying out because I am concerned about the kingdom of God. I'm concerned that the gospel prosper. And I believe that the only way it's going to prosper in China and Iran and in Indonesia and in India is by God doing something by His Holy Spirit. Do we believe that? Because, friends, it's a precarious place always. There is good news. I, I regularly tell us the gospel is prospering as it never has before. We have much to be thankful for. That should fuel intensity in our prayers. Oh God, hear. Oh God, act. Oh God, look and do your word. Draw them in from every nation and language. Friends, prayerlessness is often a sign that I have too much confidence in my abilities or the abilities of other people or other avenues such as politics or social media or technology and not enough confidence in the awesome God. So where am I in my prayer life? And then one other question with that, how can I grow in it? Wherever I am, how do I begin growing? I encourage you, I've been writing tips about prayer in our blog on, the, on the, our website. Uh, just going through a whole bunch of different things. Not because I'm the greatest prayer warrior in the world. I've been growing in this for four decades now. But I am trying to be committed to prayer. And, and I want us to learn and grow. And friends, I want to encourage you, if you don't do anything else, if you say, you know what, my prayer life's in shambles, okay? We're going to confess. And then you're going to sit before the Lord and say, help me develop a plan to pray. Okay? I've been doing it for four decades. Tomorrow, at 10.25 a.m., my phone is going to ring a buzzer and it's going to say, pray and meditate. And I've got a prayer app that I'm going to start going through. Many of you know because I've been texting you and saying, hey, how's this going? I'm praying for you today. What's happening now? And then at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, it's going to buzz again and say, pray and meditate. And it's going to do the same thing on Tuesday, okay? Because I need something to remind me. I get zeroed in. What's your plan for prayer, okay? If you're driving to work, use it. Friends, whatever it takes, if you're in exile, and you are, we had better be people of prayer. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to come to the Lord's table, and this is going to give us a chance. It's going to be a little bit briefer today with the exception of the first part where we're all going to participate together. There's no way that I could follow this teaching and not have us confess together. So I want to encourage you, we're going to rise together, and there's going to be a confession out of 1 John that we're going to read and pray and confess together. So let's stand up because, again, as exiles, every time we come to this table, we're reminded and we confess two things. We confess our sin and we confess God's gracious provision to forgive our sin. The, the word confess literally means to agree with. So we're going to agree with two things. We're sinners <laughs> and that God is faithful and just in Christ to forgive us. So I'll read the parts that say leader, and then I encourage us to all read together the other things. This is from 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 2. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. 
But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. My dear children, I write this so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Amen. Let's be seated. Brothers and sisters, if you believe this and confess God's righteousness in your own sin and trust in Christ's sacrifice alone, you are welcome to this table. If you do not, I would encourage you to not participate, but rather to uh, come see me afterwards so I can talk to you about what it means to walk with Christ. So brothers and sisters, what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this all of you in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Brothers and sisters, go ahead, and if you've got the little communion packet, peel back to get ready with the bread. And I encourage you to join with me as I pray to our Father. Father, we confess that you are light and in you is no darkness at all. But we also confess that we have sinned, broken your covenant, and walked in the darkness. Therefore, we do not come to this table, uh, we come to this table not because of our own righteousness, but because of your mercy. So receive and feed us now as those who are your children through faith in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. Jesus, we confess that you are light, and in you is no darkness at all. We also confess that you alone are the atoning sacrifice for our sin, bearing the righteous wrath we were due and giving your perfect righteousness to us. You, by your life and death, have made us the covenant people of God. So we take this cup in faith, knowing that all the blessings of God are ours through you. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's rise together and close uh, with a prayer, asking the Spirit to work upon us. And then we'll have a word of benediction. And I encourage you, I didn't even have time to bring this out in the teaching, but Israel walked under the old covenant. 
Brothers and sisters, we walk under a glorious new covenant. And the great thing is where Israel failed, the problem was not the covenant, the problem was them. But God has addressed that in the new covenant. And one of the great provisions is he gives the Holy Spirit to us. So join with me as I pray for the Spirit. Holy Spirit, we confess that you are light and in you is no darkness at all. We have come to this table today as those forgiven the penalty of sin through the blood of Christ. We also ask that you come upon us that we might be freed from sin's power. We thank you that in the new covenant you dwell in us, that you have written God's laws on our hearts and minds, and that you are moving us even now to walk in obedience to the law of our God. Spirit of God, form and fashion us into the image of Jesus, that we might bring glory to our Father and walk in all His ways. We ask this in the name of Jesus. And if you agree, say, Amen. Amen. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Brothers and sisters, you are blessed. Go forth and be a blessing in the land of your exile. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.